Welcome back to the audio reading of Wanted, a thriller novel by Crystal Hickerson. The novel is being narrated by the author, Crystal Hickerson. To find more novels by the author, please go to her website at crystalhickerson.com. Remember to leave a comment on how you like each episode. I am eager to hear thoughts. Previously on Wanted, Kaylin and her daughter are brutally attacked. After three months in a coma, Kaylin wakes up to learn that her daughter did not survive the assault. Her sister Naomi has been there at the hospital daily to watch over her, yet it was her best friend Jules who haphazardly broken the horrific news to Kaylin when she awakes. Needless to say, Kaylin did not take it very well. Now let's get back to the story. Naomi exited the third floor hospital elevator with a distinct look of pure rage. Instructed to call her as soon as her sister's condition changed, the nursing staff made sure that she was told that Kaylin was now woke from her coma and that she had been agitated, to say the least. The doctor tried to assure Naomi that he ordered Kaylin be given a shot of Ativan and that their grief counselor had visited just to offer support. But hearing that things were under control did not appease Naomi. Naomi burst into Kaylin's hospital room, not caring if she disturbed her now drug-induced sister, who she felt had been disturbed beyond repair anyway. Get the fuck out! Naomi screamed, making sure each word was pronounced with distinction. She picked up Jules' purse and threw it full force into the unsuspecting and stunned woman's lap. Jules leapt from her chair next to Kaylin's bed, startled by the fury in Naomi's voice. Yet even in her stunned surprise, Jules had a pretty good idea why this anger was being directed at her. As Jules knelt down to retrieve her purse that had simply bounced off her chest and hit the floor, she opened her mouth to try to explain. Naomi, however, was way ahead of her. I want you out. And I want you out of here now, Naomi commanded brutally as she advanced on her. Baby, calm down, Michael said, coming up swiftly behind her with a floor nurse in tow. Don't tell me to calm down. This stupid bitch told my sister about her daughter's death without my permission. I distinctly gave orders that no one was to mention that besides me. Naomi banged her chest to add the appropriate emphasis. She was calling out to Lacey and asking me to get her. What else was I supposed to tell her? Jules asked, glad to see a sane person in Naomi's husband. You were supposed to tell her nothing, and you were supposed to contact me, her family. I know I told you this, Naomi reminded her. What difference does it make who tells her? She is going to find out anyway. And speaking as a grief counselor, I say the sooner the better. Well, someone should strip your damn license because you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, or my sister wouldn't be of screaming at the top of her lungs. Which is exactly the way Naomi was speaking at the top of her lungs. 
that was a normal reaction. And Jules started, but Naomi came up to within an inch of her with teeth clenched. I'm not going to tell you this again. Get the fuck out of here. Naomi hissed. Jules saw no reprieve in Naomi's barmy eyes, so she turned her gaze over to Michael, who only shook his head in his own defeat, as if to apologize for his wife's behavior. She gave in and turned to Kaylin, who was now fast asleep thanks to the drugs. Jules suddenly felt sorry she had said anything at all. Maybe it was a little rushed. But this was her friend, and she was not going to lie to her. She had never lied to her before and wasn't about to start now, no matter what Naomi had instructed. Reluctantly, Jules gathered her things and left the room without another word. All of the commotion she had forgotten to feel elated about the fact that Kaylin was woke. With that in her mind, she smiled as she entered the elevator, the unpleasantness of Naomi escaping her. Naomi took in a deep breath, trying to calm herself. She placed a trembling hand to her chest. Michael was coming up behind her, and she moved away from him, going closer to her sister's bed. Michael noticed this and stopped. He was getting tired of her not wanting to be touched or held by him. She began to act as if with him would be worse than death. He couldn't remember the last time they even kissed. I'll go see if I can get her doctor for you, he announced before she had a chance to order him to do so. Naomi only glanced in his direction, relieved he was leaving the room. The mere sight of him, at times, made her angry. She couldn't really place why she felt that way, yet it was how she had been feeling about him for several years now. If she had to pinpoint a time, it would have been on her 41st birthday. They were in the Bahamas, and she had taken her morning jog down the beach, and suddenly she noticed how beautiful the ocean looked. How peaceful the waves sounded against the shore, and she fell to her knees and sobbed. To this day, she has no idea why she had cried so suddenly and so desperately. The act had scared her so much that she tried not to think of it again or try to understand the reason why. Naomi looked down at Caitlin, taking her hand and smoothing away hair from her sister's moist forehead. Reaching behind, she pulled the nearby chair up to her and sat down. She gently placed her elbows on Caitlin's bed and clasped her hands together as if to pray. She did not begin her prayer, but closed her eyes, trying to push back the fervent tears. Naomi did not win this fight. They came anyway, albeit silently. In her mind, she saw Lacey's little body laid out on the gurney when she had been called in to identify it. The blood had been wiped away from her head, which gave her the appearance of just sleeping soundly. Naomi did not shed a tear there. She thought of how she went about picking the perfect dress for her to be laid to rest. Lacey loved yellow like her mother, so Naomi chose a bright yellow dress with plenty of lace to match her name. The service was simple, yet packed with Lacey's schoolmates, teachers, and friends from the neighborhood. Kaylin's co-workers came as well as many of Naomi's closest church friends. Tyler Roberts, Lacey's father, came but left as soon as the service was over. He had mumbled something about taking care of everything, of which she only nodded at him absently. Naomi greeted them all with professionalism and reserved appreciation. She also handled the news reporters very adeptly. This she learned from their mother. Everything in its place. 
her mother would say to them as children. She recited it over and as an answer for, to everything. Why do we have to clean our room? They would ask. Because everything in its place. Why can't we stay out past ten? Because everything in its place. Why did Dad leave? Because everything in its place. And when the girls, then teens, stood over their mother's body in the coffin after she mysteriously fell asleep at the wheel and drove her car off a cliff, Naomi asked, Why did she have to die? Kaylin responded flatly, <laughs> Because everything in its place. As Naomi looked down at her sister now, almost 20 years later, lying sleeping in her hospital bed, she wondered if that is what Kaylin would feel about Lacey's death. Would that defeated humor rise up for this occasion as well? Naomi accepted the fact that their mother's death was an accident, but Kaylin always felt it was suicide. Her selfish escape, Kaylin had called it. But Naomi held on to her mother's wisdom and words and never believe for a second that she would leave them on purpose. Besides, it's against God's law to kill oneself, and their mother believed in God. She would never go against him. Kaylin was just bitter and upset, so Naomi just prayed for her sister to heal. But now, could she pray for her to heal from this? How could a mother recover from such a tragedy? How could anyone Naomi rubbed her eyes fiercely, clearing away the tears and the memories. She sat back in the chair for a long moment and tried to figure out what she should do next. She searched the room for a task that needed completing. It didn't take her long to find it. Across the room, on the windowsill, Lacey's picture looked crooked. She raced up and straightened it. After she had done that, she noticed a bit of wetness under the many flower pots and plants sitting between the frames. She headed off to the bathroom to retrieve some paper towels to get it up. Under her breath, she murmured something about how no one does their jobs anymore and how the world is going to shit in a hate basket. Everything in its place came a raspy voice that caused Naomi to jump, almost dropping the plant she held in her hand. Her head jerked around and she saw Kaylin watching her through half-opened eyes. Naomi replaced the pot and quickly returned to her sister's side. I thought you were sleeping. How do you feel? I'm right here. Kaylin didn't respond, only observed her for a moment, then cautiously shifted her eyes back to Lacey's photo, to the spot where she had thought she had seen her daughter smiling at her. Lacey smiling. Lacey screaming as her attacker grabbed her. Darkness. Kaylin closed her eyes tightly, frowning. Oh, baby. Naomi said, going to hug her. Why am I here? Kaylin asked to no one, yet Naomi answered, You've been in a coma for two months. I thought I had lost you, but you were always a fighter. Naomi sat down and took Kaylin's hands gently. <laughs> a fighter, Kaylin repeated vaguely. I've been here the whole time, taking care of you and making sure things were handled. Naomi tugged at her hands, pointing towards the window. And look! Fresh flowers. I know you always loved roses. The kids came by, too, and sat with you after school. The words after school shot Kaylin back to that day, the last day she remembered, the last day Lacey was alive. <laughs> alive. Kaylin let out a hard, throaty grunt, 
and then a cough. <coughs> there was something, a pain, a sickness building in her stomach. She felt as if she might vomit, and instinctively she sat up trying to get out of bed. Kaylin, slow down, Naomi said, grabbing her shoulders to try and steady her. Kaylin ripped the IV from her arm that had been pumping saline into her system. Her world spun nauseatingly when she rose and she sat back down, hard on her bed. Take it easy, she heard her sister saying from some far-off place. After a few deep breaths, she tried again, and this time succeeded in maintaining her footage. Her legs were limp and hurt from weakness as she shuffled across the floor with Naomi holding her arms firmly. When she got to the bathroom door, Kaylin shook her sister off of her, then slammed the door behind her. <laughs> Naomi stood there and helplessly listened to the sound of Kaylin's muffled weeping. Pass, yet it only felt like minutes to Kaylin. All feeling had left her except for the feeling of the cold porcelain toilet she leaned her somnolent body against. The floor was icy as well, but she didn't feel it any longer. In fact, there wasn't much she did feel any longer. She hadn't had the strength to stand and walk out of the bathroom or strength to talk to her sister. She supposed one day she would want to hear about the funeral and to discuss her future in this world, but today was not that day. Today, she only had the ability to sit numbly on the floor. A sound began to enter her desolate mind, running water that made her think of the waterfalls of Mount Rainier. It was her honeymoon with Tyler, Lacey's father. He had been so excited about their trip to the wondrous green state. When he was in the army, he was stationed at Fort Lewis for a time and always wanted to go back to visit the mountains. And that is where they had gone. Kaylin marveled at the magnificent wilderness. For her, growing up in Detroit, she had never witnessed nature in all its naked majesty. Even their drive through Oregon was an impressive edification. Tyler had given her that newfound awe and respect for the outdoors, but it was all he had given. Everything else, he took. Kaylin's brow furrowed as she pictured her ex-husband with his smooth caramel skin and sculptured body, perfect packaging that concealed a rotting soul within. How her eyes deceived her when she gazed into his, how her ears betrayed her when she heard his words of love, of permanence. Tyler looked like a man. He had seemed like a dream, and for a while, it was a beautiful dream. They had dated for two years prior to their three-year marriage, and during that time under his tutelage, of course, she had toned her body into a lean, mean, sexy machine. Her body fat stayed under 6%, and his six-foot-one frame stayed a muscle-bound 195 pounds. Tyler prided himself on being an amateur physical trainer. They would dine on broiled fish and snack on fruit salad. She adored watching him squeeze out the juices of nectarines onto the sliced pearls and apples. How his bicep bulged with every press. <laughs> Sheer heaven. Their minds were never left out either. They would visit museums 
and attend art shows and operas. Every movie was followed up with a debate of what the writer and director was trying to get across to the audience and the lovemaking. <sighs> that was precision as well. Kaylin had never known that she was multi-orgasmic, nor has she ever been since with anyone. For two and a half years of marriage, it had been bliss, and then she got pregnant. <laughs> Kaylin's joy of bearing his child was severely overshadowed by Tyler's scowl and stark anger at her for not controlling herself one day and surprising him at his office for a lunchtime tryst that ended in her two-year ahead-of-schedule pregnancy. She admitted that part of the exhilaration was the risk and she didn't care because they were married. And so what if she got pregnant and frankly screw the five-year plan of enjoying each other before bringing a child into it? They were going to be together forever, right? Tyler insisted she get an abortion. She insisted on having their child. He insisted on a divorce. He left and she raised Lacey alone. The only proof that Lacey had a father was the checks that came every two weeks. Back to the realities of the moment, she realized that the memory-triggering noise was the faucet running in the sink. She recalled that she had reached over after crying and splashed cold water in her face, drenching the front of her cotton hospital gown. That was an hour ago, and it was sometime during that hour that she had heard Naomi lightly tapping on the door and asking if she was okay. Kaylin had grunted or something, and for the next hour, Naomi had left her alone, mercifully. Thank you for small favors, she whispered to herself as she now thought seriously about leaving the hospital laboratory. Small favors, she repeated, chuckling darkly. Who grants favors anyway, she thought as she pulled herself up off the floor, walked to the sink, and switched the faucet off. Outside in the room, the ending of the watery hum made Naomi cast a look at the bathroom door, waited, and then return her attention back to the television. She was watching a couple decide on which house to buy. Kaylin stared at her image in the bathroom mirror, surprised to see how thin she had become and how sunken her eyes looked. She ran a hand across her face. Her skin felt grimy, not to mention pliable. The same hand ventured over her body. Jeez. Tyler would be proud. Back at 6%, she quipped, but the humor was immediately replaced with the distress. Why am I here? She asked the emptiness again. When no answer came, she began washing her face with the liquid soap from the dispenser. That familiar feeling of cleanliness cleared away the cobwebs of her long sleep, and she decided to continue and take a much-needed shower. It was decided that sponge baths were a thing of her past. I want you to start fixing up the study for Kay. Naomi instructed into her cell phone to her husband, Michael. Michael responded as he always did when he didn't agree with her with a question. Wouldn't the guest room be better? It has its own bathroom, he reminded her. Besides, the study was next to their bedroom, and he did not want his wife's sister that close. He thought it was big of him to agree without argument to let her sister stay with them, apparently indefinitely. But how about buffer room? Michael was hoping to try to rekindle their relationship, to somehow salvage their marriage now that Kaylin is better. Naomi considered his suggestion for a moment. 
She had wanted Kaylin close to her, just in case she needed her, and the guest room was all the way at the end of the hall, several rooms away. What if she needed something in the middle of the night? What if her little sister started having nightmares and needed her? Kaylin just lost her child brutally and shouldn't be alone. However, Naomi did have to agree that the bathroom would give Kaylin privacy and she wouldn't have to share with the kids. That did make sense. So she responded, albeit reluctantly, yes, you're right, that's probably the better choice. I just want her as close to me as possible. I understand, baby, Michael said soothingly. Naomi cringed a bit when he called her baby. The study is really too small and it only has the let out love seat in there, not to mention all of my books. The guest room is much more inviting. Okay, I said I agree with you, Naomi snapped. Have Mika wash the sheets and vacuum. Also put one of those new scented candles in there. Disinfect the bathroom. Oh, and unpack her clothes. The suitcases are still in the basement, she ordered. Michael wanted to remind her that he was the one who carried all of Kaylin's belongings into the storage area in the basement and that he was the one who packed up all of her furniture and hauled them over to the storage unit they had rented. Yet instead, he said, I'll make sure everything is ready for her. I am so glad she made it through. Yes, well, the hard part is just beginning for her. Naomi paused hearing the shower stop. Okay, um, I will probably sleep here tonight. I'm not sure how much longer they will keep her, but I want to be here when she goes for test in the morning. I will try to come home sometime tomorrow. Do you need anything? Michael asked, already knowing the answer. If Naomi had have needed anything, she would have already barked it out. No, she just got out of the shower, so I'm going to run down and get some dinner so we can eat together. I believe they will be bringing around her food pretty soon. I'll talk to you later. Naomi hung up just as Michael started to say, I love you. She heard the beginnings of it and chose to ignore it. Naomi replaced the phone back into her purse and switched it over to silent. Her focus had to remain on Kaylin, not on Michael. She wasn't worried about the kids because it is their father's job, after all, to take care of them when she can't. And right now, it was impossible for her to do both. At least that is how she saw it. Michael wanted the world, she thought. He wanted her to be the mother, lover, and dutiful housewife at all times, not to mention to play perfect hostess to his business functions and stand by his side as the still attractive first wife, while many of his other colleagues had moved on to their second much younger wives. Michael James, executive marketing VP extraordinaire, prided himself on being unconventional, not the typical marketing rep because his strategy incorporated personal relationships, integrity, and increasing dividends. His clients saw him as a friend, as well as a determined salesman. Michael has also literally written the book on it, The Businessman's Guide to Making Work and Home Life Possible. It was the New York Times bestseller for eight weeks straight. So Naomi saw their family as one of his experiments that must not fail. How would it look if the expert of creating career and family mesh harmoniously falls short? It wouldn't sell too many books now, would it? It wouldn't keep providing him with a six-figure income now, would it? No, it wouldn't. In essence, he needed her to be there for him him. So now it was time for him to put all of that incredible knowledge to work for him. And Naomi was determined to test it to the max. 
<laughs> Why not? God knows he must be willing to put his money where his mouth is, right? He must be willing to struggle for his craft. Sure, he could handle it. And if nothing else, it will be great material for his next bestseller. How to be supportive and still look like a saint even when your wife is a bitch. Or something to that effect. Naomi's head jerked around when she heard the bathroom door click open. She rushed over, startling Kaylin, and immediately took hold of her sister's elbows to stabilize her. I got you, Naomi reassured her, but it was highly unnecessary. Kaylin felt much better, and strength had returned to her limbs, albeit slowly. I'm fine, she told Naomi, brushing away her older sister's grasp with the grace of an inexperienced acrobat. Kaylin made her way back to her bed. When her head hit the pillow, she was surprised by how out of breath and tired she felt. It was a feeling of coming out of a deep illness that had snapped you of potency, like the flu. Her brow wrinkled as she took in each breath. She watched how her chest moved up and down, and for the first time since she awoke, realized that she had been in a coma for months. Don't wear yourself out. They should be bringing dinner soon. You must be hungry, Naomi said as she studied her. Yes, Kaylin hadn't thought about food. I am hungry. I was going to go down and grab a plate myself from the cafeteria. We could eat together. She said the last part as if it was a question. Kaylin only nodded. Okay, so I will be right back. Naomi held up both of her hands as if to motion for Kaylin to stay put. Where was she going? It seemed ridiculous as soon as she did it. With Naomi gone, Kaylin sat up in bed slightly and observed her room for the first time. The room was nice and homey, thanks to her sister. <laughs> the windowsill was filled with flowers, cards, and photos. Her eyes watered when they fell on Lacey's picture. It was her last school picture, and it showed her whole body. She was sitting on the floor, posing with one leg bent and one arm draped over it casually. She was wearing blue jeans and a white blouse. Her smile was dazzling making her eyes beam. How could this innocent child know that only a short few months later that smile would be gone forever? Kaylin felt a strong need to touch it, to hold it in her hands. Swinging her legs slowly over the bed, she got up and walked cautiously over to it. Whether it was the holding of the photo so close to her, or the feel of the frame, which gave her the strangest sensation of hugging her daughter, her knees buckled, and she slid helplessly down the wall to the floor. She could no longer contain the tears that came once again to her. How? Why? Why did this happen? How could her precious baby girl be dead? Why did God take her in the cruelest of ways? Why is she dead? Oh God, why? When the aide came in to deliver Kaylin's dinner, she found the woman sitting with her legs bent tight against her chest, clutching the photo of her child, rocking back and forth, humming a song on the floor. The aide did not recognize the tune and was unsure what to do other than to bend down beside her and lightly touch the woman's shoulder. Miss Roberts, let's get you back in bed, the aide whispered softly. Kaylin gazed over at the woman as if she had never seen another human being before. Yet it was something about the kindness in her voice that she allowed the woman to guide her back to the bed. Still grasping the photo, Kaylin lay down while the aide pulled the covers over her. The aide pulled Kaylin's personal blanket up so it touched her hands. It was my grandmother's, Kaylin said softly when she felt the knitted quilt. It's beautiful, the aide responded. She pulled the tray with the food she had brought in towards Kaylin. Think you can eat? 
Kaylin only shook her head. I'll leave it for a moment in case you change your mind. Kaylin nodded feebly. After a short moment to make sure her patient was quieted, the aide took her leave. Jules Petrie heard the jingle of the little bell above the entrance to Dark Alleyways, the metaphysical bookstore located in the heart of Royal Oak, Michigan. Such a happy little sound to the doorway of such a dark store. The lighting was subdued. The cherry woods and leather furniture kept the atmosphere quite nostalgic, like an old English library. Yet layered throughout this library were an array of displays highlighting sculptures, of pagan god and goddesses, crystals and gemstones freestanding, and as jewelry. There was an entire wall filled with shelves exhibiting an assortment of tarot cards from Rider Waite and Shamanism decks. Guarding the African and Native American drum section was an exquisite statue of the goddess Bastet, a woman with the head of a domestic cat. She was the daughter of Ra and the goddess of sunrise, pleasure, music, dance, and fertility. The statue's gemmed eyes seemed to follow your every move. The surroundings were familiar where she purchased her books, received her psychic readings, and drunk the best green tea in Oakland County. When she entered, the smell of jasmine incense and the sounds of Sunday, Sia's haunting melody, permeated the air. Jules stopped to look at the display for the new Constantino's book and upcoming signing. Hey! He's coming here, she hollered out to the owner, who she knew was behind the counter somewhere, as he always is. The owner, Connor Spencer, looked up from his restocking. Of course, what do you think? I only get the best here. Connor was a striking Irish lad, whose Gaelic name meant hound lover. Jules thought to be quite appropriate for him, and not because he liked dogs. Right. She said, plopping her purse onto the counter and leaning over it to see the jet-black-haired man shoving reams of new copy paper beneath the facsimile machine. What you doing? <laughs> she giggled as if she was twenty years younger, which would have placed her closer to his age. Working hard, baby. Working hard, Connor said, standing up. He looked at her puzzled. I thought you would be at the hospital all day. What? Expecting a date or something? I know how you hate the pop-ins, but this is your store, your place of business, not your apartment, so... I thought you wouldn't mind, Jules quipped. She knew that dating a 28-year-old would go nowhere, but so what? In her life, neither would dating a 42-year-old. A man her own age. What rule was it that said she had to act her age or build relationships with men her age? Jules hated getting older, therefore she rebelled from all things in her age range. She even made sure she was up on the latest artists of the day. Not that the younger generations had real artists anymore. Consequently, two years ago, when she walked into this establishment for the first time and met this Colin Farrell look-alike, she she didn't let a little thing like a valley of years between them stand in her way of the pursuit. She stared back into his deep brown eyes and saw that he was waiting for an actual response. I got kicked out, she admitted. How do you get kicked out of the hospital? He asked, pulling her purse off the counter and placing it neatly into one of the shelves, a move he has done many times. Queen of the Gods arrived. <laughs>
Naomi, Connor said knowingly. He had heard Jules' horror stories about her best friend's sister enough times. I gave Kaylin the talisman that you made for me, and you know what happened? Jules reached up and gently cupped his chin in her hands. She woke up. Connor's eyes widened with excitement. No shit! No shit, she answered. Connor nodded, smiling broadly. He remembered saying a little chant over the tiger's eye he had placed inside the bag before burning a white candle all the way down to the wick as instructed. The chant was simple. Tormented soul, return home through the dark. Tormented soul, return home through the dark. He had sat cross-legged on the floor of his living room and recited the words over and over until he felt it was enough as the candle burned. The next day he had given the powerful bag to Jules, who took it to Kaylin. You know what this means, he said suddenly, his mind racing. No, Jules said, comically rising up and stepping a centimeter backwards. She has been chosen, Connor said with such an ominous flare that Jules couldn't help but laugh. What? Connor, don't even start your nonsense. Jules knew he claimed to be some sort of makeshift warlock or whatever, and the things he would say would sound utterly ridiculous at times. Nevertheless, he was so damn cute with his gothic style that she ignored it mostly, counting it as his youth talking. Besides, he was a very spiritual man who cared about his body. <laughs> what a body it was. She thought it rare that a man with only a few years on him could find such depth in God. It was definitely a plus. He looked at her incredulously. Nonsense? Do you believe or not? He challenged. Yes, love, I am a believer in all of these things, but I am not sure what you are talking about. Okay, the talisman I gave you. I gave it an ancient blessing, an incantation, if you will. I summoned the help of a spirit, and it would seem it worked. He said, gesturing for her to come around the counter. Business was usually slow this time of the day, only one of the customer in the back browsing. When did you do this? Her question came as a soft murmur. Connor had talked about proving the act of summoning a spirit, but she never thought it could actually work. Connor looked around the bookstore dramatically. Just the other night, right before I gave it to you, he whispered to her. It was an amazing experience. What happened? How did... She started. I've never done anything like that before. So powerful. So real. He grabbed her waist and pulled her in closer. Jules felt a rush of desired adrenaline flow through her as she instantly craved to kiss his neck. I did the usual meditation. I envisioned the spiral ball, etc. I said the chant, and after what seemed like forever, it happened. What happened? She breathed, touching her lips tenderly to the nape of his neck. Connor didn't really react. The angel appeared, he said flatly. Jules reared back and looked at him. Oh shit! True shit, he said, waiting for her response. Jules looked away from him and tried to search her mind for a retort in the meaning of what he was telling her. They had spent many hours talking about their own individual psychic encounters and ghostly experiences, which of course they accounted as real, but never had any incantation ever truly worked. They both thought it was because they were too drunk tired, or just simply not doing it right. Yet this was different. 
Connor was in fact saying that it happened as expected. Jules turned to him again. What happened? She repeated. Connor averted his eyes and again looked around just to make sure no one was in earshot. At first, nothing, he began. I didn't think anything was ever going to happen. It was like I had been there for hours. I even nodded off a few times. Then I saw something, a mist that I thought was smoke from the candles, but it started to grow and thicken and then take shape. It was just a ball to start, then it elongated into a sphere, and then a tall line reaching up from the floor to the ceiling. No joke. The ceiling. Connor placed his hands on her shoulders. I swear to you, I heard horns, like a trumpet or something, and voices or whispers. It was faint, but I heard it. Then the mist took shape. He took in a deep breath. I looked away a few times. Even then, I didn't think it was real, but the mist solidified into a clear form, and I do mean clear. Just as clear as you standing here. Oh my god, Jules uttered. It said the words, fear not. He removed his hands from her shoulders briefly to accentuate the last two words and then replaced them. The voice unlike anything I had ever heard before, like an orchestra. Connor closed his eyes, remembering the sound. It told me so many things, things I can't reveal to you. Come on, she insisted. I can't, he said with such utter finality. But what I can say is that he told me he would be back, yet not to see me, to see someone else. He also told me that I would know the time of his return because I would be told. And you think that this has something to do with my friend? It was because of what he said to me. Things that I can't repeat to you, but yes, it has to do with your friend. He paused. Why did you come here tonight? To see you. Her sister was so wicked that I had to talk to someone, but also I wanted to share in the joy that Kaylin is awake. No other reason, he pressed. What other reason is there? Isn't that enough? I'm feeling awful. I wanted to be caressed, Jules said suggestively. Taking his arms, she wrapped them around her. She aggressively went in and started kissing his chest. Even through his t-shirt, her lips penetrated him. He gave in, taking his hand and positioning her mouth up to his. He kissed her passionately. As always, it was so easy to get lost in her, but he resisted. Listen, Jules, I have something for you. I got something for you, too. Jules let her hand slide to the front of his body and grasped hold of his bulge, tightly sending a surge through him. Connor couldn't help but caress her more ravenously. That's what she did to him. Fourteen years he's senior or not. Should I close up shop so you two can go at it on the counter or what? Rachel Mathers appeared at the doorway, coming from the storage room, and stared at her boss and his current going at it behind the front desk. Connor was startled, forgetting she was back there, and moved away from Jules. Sorry, man. Rach, could you take the front for a second? There's something I need to show Jules. <laughs> I'm sure it is, Rachel says, sliding behind them. No, it's nothing like that. Just man the front. I'll be back in a minute. Oh, is that all it takes? 
Rachel said, laughing aloud. Connor shot her a disapproving look, and she held up her hands in surrender. Jules eyed the young girl for a moment, feeling a bit intimidated by the fact that her black jeans and t-shirt fit her 19-year-old frame all too tightly. Rachel and Connor had on the same black t-shirt with a crescent moon image at the top right with the store's name beneath it. Jules had to take a moment to remind herself that she was also a size 2 and that she tiboed daily to maintain it. With that reassurance in her head, she retrieved her purse and made her way to the staircase that led to Connor's private living quarters. She's a perky little hot thing, isn't she? Jules said to him once they were headed upstairs. Connor smiled inwardly, flattered that his girl was jealous. No worries, baby. She would be more interested in you than me. Got it? Jules did get it and felt better about his new employee. When Jules entered into the one-bedroom living quarters, she is always amazed at how comfortable it appears. Not at all as if it is a flat above a bookstore. Connor had done extensive renovations that transformed the upstairs office supply room into a spacious modern apartment to rival any condominium in the area. She immediately kicked off her heels and headed for the corner bar to fix her a strong margarita. Connor headed straight for his package that had arrived earlier that day. He opened it. I did come here for another reason, Jewel said after taking an approving sip of her drink. Or should I say an additional reason. Go on, he said, not looking at her. I was hoping that you would have a healing book on grief. Now that she is awake, I know she will start to feel the pain of everything. Jules fished through her purse and pulled out her cigarettes. She lit one. Even though Connor was very particular about what went into his body, he still smoked and drank alcohol, as did she. They were perfect for each other. There was something about healing spells I saw last week. I can't remember the author now, but this is what you seek, he said purposefully. He retrieved a book from the stack in the box and placed it in front of her on the bar. The book was solid black, hardcover, without a jacket, with brilliant gold embossed letters across the front. One word, evocation. Cautiously, Jules took hold of the book, instantly aware of its weight. The oversized volume held easily 500 pages. She ran a gentle hand over the cover, feeling the cloth-like texture of the binding. Careful, it's a first edition. Connor warned her. Her eyes examined it more closely and saw that there were fine indentations of a symbol. It was a large hexagram with a circle around it. There were also smaller symbols written inside of the circle. What is this symbol? She asked him. It's called the Earth Pentacle and inscribed inside is the Enochian alphabet. He reached over and ran his finger around the circle. The Anakian alphabet first appeared during the 16th century. There was this magician, Dr. John Dee, and his associate, Sir Edward Kelly, who claimed that the alphabet and the Anakian language was transmitted to them by angels. This alphabet is used in the practice of Anakian magic. It's used to call angels. It's very powerful. Jules considered that for a moment, then opened the book. The pages were soft, 
almost like fabric, layered through were very exquisite illustrations of angels, demons, and tutorial charts on how to summon them. She marveled at the artistry and understood that what she was holding was not only very valuable monetarily, but also held ancient secrets foretold. At that moment, she felt strangely lightheaded. Her eyes wavered upward, meeting Connor's. Her vision blurred, and she felt herself falling backward. Connor reached out and steadied her. Jules set the book back down immediately. Are you alright? He asked, coming up behind her and leading her to the sofa. Jules was appreciative, because that was her next suggestion. She wasn't sure what had just happened, but she felt better as soon as her hands released their grip off the book. Leaning back into the depth of the sofa, she placed a hand to her head and rubbed. What the hell just happened? You look like you were about to faint. Maybe it was the tequila. I only had one sip. She glanced back at that book. Maybe it was that book, she said accusingly. Connor shook his head, though considering it. He went over and picked it up, bringing it back to her. He carried it as if it was a delicate crystal vase. This is for you. It's a loner. He made sure to stress the last word. I think he could help your friend. How? By evoking a spirit? Jules began to feel nauseous. She held her stomach, but the feeling passed. No, that is a much more intense thing to do. She would need training on how to do it. However, there is a meditation in here where you don't call the spirit, but during the meditation, spirits help you overcome whatever pain you're going through. That was only part of the truth. Jules cut her eyes at the book he was holding, now sitting next to her. How do you know all of this? <laughs> I'm in the book business. It's my job to know all of this stuff. Besides, I have always been fascinated with angels and ghosts. They do make for compelling stories, Jules agreed. No, not just stories. I mean, many of the established religions began over 2,000 years ago. Then, miracles happened all the time. Prophets walked the earth and people listened, wrote it down. Where are they all now? Are the angels all gone? Did God up and just disappear? Connor asked. Maybe we all stop listening. Or we learn to find the answers on our own, Jules said. Or maybe our attention was redirected to the churches, to the bricks and mortar of power. Only certain people, certain men in robes and supremacy. What if God is just waiting for us to continue the conversation, allowing us to soak it all in, the sciences, the world? What if he is just waiting for us to ask another question, Connor said. Waiting on us to grow up, to mature? Exactly, he said. Jules looked down at the book he was holding. Do you believe that some of the answers are written in that book you're holding? I do. Jules was oddly frightened of it. Why do I need that? Can't you just tell me how to do it and then I can tell her? Connor placed his hand on the book for effect. You need the book, he insisted. Why? He paused, searching for the right words. Words that would not bring more fear into her. This is a special book, and without it, it won't work. In addition, it will give her something to read, to focus on, you know. Very beautiful illustrations, she will love it. He didn't know if that would appease her, but he had to convince her. He had to. Fine. Put it in a bag, and I'll take it to her. Just tell me which chapter it is. Connor sighed with relief. It's in chapter, he began, but Jules held a finger up to his. Not now. 
Right now, I need a little healing. She pulled him to her, then paused. I set the book down first. <laughs> Stay tuned for the next chapter of Wanted.